Um, one author shared the story of some American tourists who were in Rome. They were on a, a tour bus that was being led by an, uh, an English-speaking tour guide. They had stopped for their first stop at a, at a Roman square at this beautiful basilica. And so the, the bus dropped them off right there at the, uh, the stairs leading up to, to this basilica. And so the people climbed those stairs and saw the beautiful church and, and admired the architecture and beauty that, that was there. And as they began sort of to, to leave the church and began to prepare to go back to the bus, they were kind of scattered out. And, and a couple of them were about to cross the street to get back to the bus, and it was several lanes of really busy traffic, and the tour guide stopped them and said, don't, don't, don't cross. If you cross one at a time, the cars will hit you one at a time. Instead, you want to cross as a group, because if you cross together, they're afraid they'll hurt their cars, and so they won't. <laughs> they, won't they won't hit you. Now, that story seems a little far-fetched, but the author's point is well taken. It's better to be together than it is to be solo. There's, there's no doubt about that in a lot of different situations. Could this be true spiritually as well? Could it be that we do better when we're together than, than when we're going solo? Can we stand spiritually flying solo? In Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul said that we are in the midst of a spiritual war, a battle, a battle that, that we don't fully see or comprehend with our own eyes, a a spiritual battle. How is it possible to stand in the midst of this kind of battle? How is it possible? Well, these are the questions that we're going to think about together as we look at Philippians 4, verses 1 through 3. You'll remember that this book was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. He wanted to encourage them to continue on and and their growth in Christ and their faithfulness to him. Let's look at Philippians 4, beginning in verse 1. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, in this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Well, this text teaches that you should stand firm in one accord. You should stand firm in one accord. How do we do that? Well, let's look in verse 1. In verse 1, Paul begins with the word so then or, or therefore, and what that tells us is that what Paul is about to say is connected to what Paul has just said. Well, what has Paul just said? If you look in Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21, Paul has talked about the fact that the Philippian citizenship was in heaven, that they could expect one day to have glorious heavenly bodies, not broken earthly bodies like we have now, that one day Christ was going to return and that he is the sovereign ruler over all the universe. And so here in Philippians 4, Paul says, because those things are true, stand firm. Stand firm in the Lord. And basically, it's something like this. Paul is saying, since you know that your citizenship is in heaven, when a temptation comes and offers you something, you can say to yourself, you know what? Because I belong to Christ, I know my citizenship is in heaven, and I know one day I'll reap eternal rewards So I can say no to this lesser thing now because God promises me something so much greater. 
Our citizenship being in heaven affects how we live when it comes to to suffering. It affects how we live when it comes to integrity. And Paul wants their citizenship, the fact that they belong to Christ and that one day they'll spend eternity with him, he wants that to inform how they live today. How they live today. And he says, because your citizenship is in heaven, stand firm. Stand firm. Don't don't give in. Don't, Don't waffle. There's going to be many battles, many hardships, many difficulties. How do you stand firm? How do you maintain your faith in Christ and your commitment to Him? Well, that's what Paul is talking about in these verses. As we look in verse 1, we see Paul's deep love for the Philippians. Now, he's already talked earlier in this book about his affection for the Philippians. At other places, he he talks of his affection for this believer or that believer or this church or that church. But this verse is unique because Paul just starts stacking up the descriptors to explain his love for the Philippians. First, he calls them dearly loved in verse 1, two times. He calls them dearly beloved or dearly loved or, or beloved, two times. He calls them those that he longs for. Remember, he's in prison for preaching the gospel. He can't be with the Philippians, but he said, I long to be with you. I I enjoy you so much. I want to be with you. He calls them my brothers and sisters. Now, we know that when we come to know Jesus, God adopts us into his family. He adopts us, and and this means we're supposed to be brothers and sisters with, with other believers. And that's what Paul says to the Philippians. You're my brothers, and you're my sisters. Notice that Paul doesn't expect the Philippians to look up to him like he's some higher person. No, he's a fellow child of God. That's what Paul's saying to the Philippians. He also says to them, you're my joy. The thought of the Philippians brought Paul great joy. Why? Because these people really love Jesus. He also said, you're my crown. Now, this was reminiscent of a wreath that would have been placed on on one who had won a victory. They would receive this this victor's crown. And and that's what Paul's saying here. You, You are... A crown to me. You're, you're, you fill my heart with joy and with celebration. These words were, this, this idea of joy and crown were often used to describe at the end of the Olympics when, when, a, when the victor would be crowned and that wreath would be put on, on the uh, winner's head. Paul's basically saying, when I think of you, my heart is filled with joy and celebration. How Paul loves the Philippians And Paul's deep feelings for these in the Philippian church is a model for how believers ought to look at each other and how believers ought to feel about one another. So how do we stand in one accord? From verse 1, we care deeply for one another. We care deeply for one another. I read the story of a woman who had been born to a druggie. In fact, her birth mother snuck out of the hospital shortly after giving birth through a window to this woman and to her twin sister. They were put into the foster care system, and within two years, the two of them had been adopted. She had an opportunity a couple of times to interact with her birth mother, and she said every time it was very disappointing. But as she reflected on having been adopted, this is what she said. Through adoption, my parents took abandoned girls, broken and unwanted. They changed our names and gave us theirs. They gave us love and acceptance in spite of who we had been, in spite of where we had come from. 
They gave us a new and hopeful future. Does that sound familiar? Is that your story? It's mine. I don't mean that I was adopted here, but I mean I was adopted in Christ. And if you belong to Jesus, you were too. He, he took you into his family, broken though you were. And he gave you a new name and a, and a hopeful future. And what Paul is saying here is that because you've been adopted, because you were brothers and sisters, you should care for one another deeply like a family cares for their own. Do you see that God's intent for every person who knows Jesus is that they're a part of a family? That's what adoption lends itself to. You're not meant to be out here solo. You're meant to be a part of a family who deeply cares for each other. Who deeply cares for each other. Let's think about what this looks like in our lives. First, your connection to a church is critical in standing firm. Your connection to a church is critical in standing firm. I know that in today's world, it's really uncool to suggest that a person ought to belong to a church. I recognize that. The argument goes something like this. Listen, I know Jesus. I can do that by myself. I can pray. I can read the Bible. I don't need any church. That's me and Jesus. Get out of my way. I I don't need all of that. And this sounds so good, and it fits the mood of our day. What's the mood of our day? Hey, go your own way. Do your own thing. Do what pleases you. Who cares about anyone else? It sounds so good. The only problem is it's completely opposed to this book right here. It's absolutely unbiblical. That mindset flies squarely in the face of the New Testament, a book that's written to churches, a book that's written to believers who are a part of a church. You see, to refuse to put yourself in a Bible-believing church is to disobey verse after verse after verse of the New Testament. How can you deeply care for one another? Remember these, Paul's writing to the believers at Philippi who are part of the church at Philippi. How can you deeply care for one another? How can you obey what Paul is saying here if you refuse to belong to a church? There are countless verses that are like this. You just can't obey them unless you, unless you place yourself in the context of a body of believers. You see, there's a huge difference between attending church and belonging to a church. You see, it is belonging It is in belonging that these kinds of deep relationships are forged. When we place ourselves in a body of believers and we say, I'm putting my life here and I'm going to invest my life into you and I'm going to trust that you're going to invest your life into me, that's where the kinds of relationships that Paul is describing, that's where they happen, right there. So when you try to do the Christian life on your own, Well, to do so is to disobey Scripture. And it also is to cut yourself off from one of the main ways that God helps you be faithful to Him. One of the main ways that God helps you to stand firm. As we reflect on verse 1, we also ought to ask ourselves, do we care deeply for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we care deeply for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we help them? Do we pray for them? Do we make time to spend with them because time is such a a difficult commodity to give up today? Do, Do we make time for brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you really care about your fellow brother and sister? You see, part of standing firm together is having a deep love for each other. 
So how do you stand firm in one accord? Well, we've seen first, you care deeply for each other. You care deeply. How else do you stand firm? Let's look in verse 2. Euodia and Syntyche were two women in the church who had some sort of dispute. We don't really know the nature of the dispute. It seems that Paul did. He doesn't address it, but he seems to be aware of it. Now, notice that Paul doesn't tell Euodia and Syntyche, hey, you do this, you do that. No, what does he say to them? He says, you two agree in the Lord together. Get together and make things right. This wasn't something for Paul to, to instruct them in, in terms of telling them, follow this, 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 this. No, he says, you two ladies, be mature. Get together and work things out. Now, it seems clear that the dispute that was going on between these two ladies was having an adverse effect on the church. Why else would Paul have brought it up in this book to the church at Philippi? It might have been that each of them kind of had a factions. There was a group, Euodia's group and her crew and Syntyche's group and her crew. And perhaps that was causing a, a real trouble within the church. We don't really know. But what this division did is it absolutely marred the witness of the church. Remember, what did, we, what did we just say about the church? The church is meant to be a family. And in a family, you don't have people, not, not the way family is supposed to work, you don't have people where they're at odds with one another and they won't talk to each other and they're divided and mad at each other and holding grudges and bitterness and all of that. That doesn't make sense. And Paul's saying here, it surely doesn't make sense in the family of God. So you odia and Syntyche, get things right. You two get together and agree in the Lord. Let the Lord lead you and forgive each other and work through things. We know these two women both were committed to the, to the Lord Jesus. It wasn't that one of them was a believer and one of them wasn't. It wasn't that one had bad doctrine and the other. No, it was nothing like that. These were two women who were committed to the Lord. We see that from verse 3. So how do we stand firm together? Well, we care deeply for one another. But according to verse 2, how do we stand firm together? We work through disputes. We work through disputes. Now, I heard this story of a Kentucky couple who had married back in 1955. They had had five children, but the marriage went south, and in 1968, this couple divorced. Both remarried. In 2015, both of them lost their spouses. And sometime after that, they met up again at a family reunion. And they began to talk, and suddenly their relationship was reignited. And that couple is getting married this month after 50 years of being divorced. Now, after all these years, getting back together. Seems like a wonderful reconciliation, especially for the kids and grandkids. Imagine what that would would be like. Why is it that we so often wait to try to make things right with people? Why is it that we so often refuse to take a step in the direction of working things out, in the direction of agreeing in the Lord. You see, Christians are called to work through their disputes. They're called to reconcile with one another. As Paul puts it in verse 2, to agree in the Lord. That's what we're called to, to do. So believers, if we would be faithful to what Paul is saying here, we must work through our 
differences. It doesn't mean that we'll always agree. We won't always agree. But we can agree in the Lord. And what Paul means by that is you can, you can work things out where you can still have a good relationship with one another, even in the midst of, of difficulty and disagreement. It means that we must forgive. It means that we must work toward reconciliation. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 23 through 24, So if you were offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Is there someone that you need to forgive? Is there someone that you need to go and ask for forgiveness from? Is there someone that you need to be reconciled with? Why don't you get things right and soon? Don't say, well, one of these years I'm going to get to this. That's not the spirit of the passage that, that we're looking at. The spirit of the passage is that as believers we're supposed to be working toward making things right and in short order. So friends, we stand firm in our faith when we're serious about having Christ-honoring relationships. And when we aren't serious about having Christ-honoring relationships, when instead we hold on to grudges and we won't forgive and we won't reconcile, when we will not do those things, we open ourselves up to falling spiritually. We open ourselves up to the attacks of the evil one. So how do you stand firm in one accord? You care deeply for one another. You work through disputes. Let's look at verse 3 and see another way to stand firm together in the Lord. Now in verse 3, Paul addresses a true partner in the faith. Paul is likely speaking to a specific leader in the church. uh, One of the pastors. And it it's possible that everyone would have known who he was talking about. Or it's possible that the word that's translated as partner was meant to be used as a proper name. Uh, the name Sisygos. And that he's speaking directly to an elder named Sisygos or a pastor named Sisygos. And he's saying, you work with these two ladies, with Euodia and Syntyche, and help them work through their differences. You, you help them. And so... It's clear from verse 3 that these women had labored alongside Paul in the spread of the gospel. They were committed to making Jesus known. This tells us something. It's entirely possible for people who love Jesus, who are committed to his purposes, to get at odds with one another. That's entirely possible. But Paul says to this church leader, you help them work through this. Help them agree in the Lord. These ladies contended for the gospel. They're committed to scripture. And it helps us see something else. Unity in the church is built around the gospel. In other words, these weren't women who didn't believe the truths of the Christian faith. These were women who were committed to the gospel. They were committed to the deep truths of the Christian faith. So when we have unity around the gospel, we can work through other disagreements. They're secondary. We we can work through them. Now, Paul notes that these ladies and others who labored alongside him, Clement, and others, their names were written in the book of life. What's Paul saying? Well, he's saying one thing. If you can't get along here on earth, sure is going to be a long eternity. 
if you, uh, if you don't learn how to, to make things right here. Now, that's what, what Paul's really pointing to is this. Paul's saying your citizenship is in heaven. Remember that. Your names are written in the book of life. The way you live now ought to be a picture of what heaven's going to be like. And what's heaven going to be? It's going to be a place where God takes diverse people, people who are completely different, who have trusted in Jesus, who have been saved, and he's going to bring them together. It's going to be a beautiful picture of people who are completely different, but who have a love for Christ in common. And the church is meant to be a glimpse of what's ahead. The church is meant to be a picture of what heaven's going to be like. So so when there's disputes and division in the church, it tells people the wrong story about who God is. It tells the wrong story about what heaven is like. In Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10, we get a glimpse of heavenly worship. Listen to these powerful words. After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And do you see what's happening there? There's a picture of worship in heaven, and there's people from every part of the globe there, every skin color, all kinds of different people. But what are they doing? They are in unison glorifying and worshiping God. And so what happens here in a local church is meant to be a glimpse of heavenly worship. Paul says your names are written in the book of life. Remember that. You're you're citizens of heaven. Live like that now. Now notice that Paul encourages the church to stand firm in unity or to stand together. So when the church is divided and when we're at odds with one another, what it does is it makes us less likely to stand. It makes us more wobbly. It makes it more possible for the enemy to come after us and to knock us down for the world to stand against us and for us to fall. It creates a weakness that can be exploited by the devil, that can be exploited by the world. One commentator said that division within the church was like a chink in the church's armor. It's a weak point. And it can cause all kinds of damage and destruction. So we stand firm when we stand together. We, we need each other's help. We, we need each other's help. That's the bottom line. The church has a responsibility. The church has a responsibility to work toward unity. And what we see here is Paul saying to the leadership of the church, you help to maintain unity with, within the body. We have to work toward peace. When we share the gospel in common, we can work through the disagreements over this or over that. And when the gospel is our prime focus, then we're willing to let go of personal preferences and things that are really important to us. Why? Because there's something greater. There's something more important and more compelling to us than my own preference, than my own needs, my own desires. So how do you stand firm in one accord? Well, we've seen first you care deeply for one another. Second, we've seen that you work through disputes. And from verse 3, We see that the church must pursue unity. The church as a body must work toward unity. 
Now, a cashier at a Lubbock Chick-fil-A was, was recently in the headlines. He had served a customer. The customer had left some change behind and driven off or drove off w- without getting change. And that Chick-fil-A employee put the change in an envelope. And it was a regular customer, so he was sure that he would see the customer again. And, and he said that uh, when he would get ready for work, he would look at it as almost a part of his uniform. He would get his tag, his apron, his hat, and he would grab that envelope. Well, finally, weeks later, the day came when he happened to be at the window when that customer drove back through. Customer came through, and the Chick-fil-A employee handed, the, handed him that envelope and said to him, Hey, this is change that you left uh, some weeks ago. I've, I've been waiting to, to give it back to you. Now, the customer was just shocked, just shocked, blown away that the cashier would have held on to that change for all that time and given it back to him. Now, how much do you think was in that envelope? Three dollars. Three bucks, that's all. The cashier was so intentional about returning three dollars. Now, in church, how frequently do we overlook the critical issues related to unity? We don't apologize when we should apologize. We don't pursue reconciliation when we ought to pursue making things right. We just try to avoid it. We just try to sweep it under the rug. We just try to pretend that it isn't real. We're so haphazard often when it comes to to maintaining the unity of our church family. But if a Chick-fil-A cashier can be so intentional and so serious about returning $3 to a customer weeks and weeks later, shouldn't we be even more faithful when it comes to maintaining something as priceless as the witness of the church, when it comes to maintaining something as priceless as maintaining our walk with the Lord? Because our unity helps us stand firm in Him. And when the unity of the church is gone, we are much more vulnerable to attack. We're much more likely to fall. If a Chick-fil-A employee can can hold on to three bucks, can't we work towards something that is immensely more important than three dollars? The witness, yes, the faithfulness of the church. Unity doesn't just happen. Paul makes that clear here. It's not natural for Euodia and Syntyche to just get together and make things work. What's natural? What's natural is to stay apart. What's natural is to avoid each other. What's natural is to to talk over here about the situation, but never to get together and to work through the situation. But what Paul is saying is you must you must get together. You must pursue unity. You must work toward unity. And when you don't, the likelihood that you're going to fall spiritually is much greater. If you want to stand firm, you stand firm together. You stay together. Now, we don't compromise on the gospel. We're not, we're not talking about unity at the, at the sake for the, or at the cost of, of the scriptures. No, we're going to be committed to the, the core teachings of scripture, the essentials of Christianity. We're going to be committed to that. And Paul makes it clear. He is over and over. You can see Paul writing about guarding the gospel. But when we can agree on the core essentials of Christianity, of the gospel, then we can work through the secondary things. We can. We share the gospel in common. We've been saved by God's grace. Surely we can work through these other issues, these side things. Do you help maintain the unity of the church? Do you do what you can to try to make sure 
that we're one, that we're unified. Now, the church has a responsibility. The church has a responsibility to, to, to work for unity. Jesus provides a plan for that, to, to help the church work through disagreements and disputes. You can read about it in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Incidentally, these verses also teach us that Jesus intended for every Christian to belong to, to a, a local church where this, the, the instructions that he gives in Matthew 18, 15 through 20 could be worked out. Now, Paul told Titus in chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, reject a divisive person after a first and second warning. For you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying that when a person is driven to division and they don't care about the unity of the church, that person ultimately places themselves outside of the church's fellowship. Kind of like what you see in Matthew 18. Division in the church is critical. And the church must, yes, the church must pursue unity and work toward unity. You've probably seen videos in floodwaters. I remember seeing some uh, last year from, from Houston where there'd be just giant mounds of fire ants floating on top of the water in a flood. You're going, why, why did that happen? Those, those ants, it would have been wonderful for them all to have been wiped out, but instead they're floating in these giant, huge clods. Well, scientists have looked at it and they've asked the question, why can they do that? What, what's, what's at work? to allow them to survive. Well, it turns out that if you put an individual fire ant in the water, the, the article that I read said that that ant would flounder and struggle and, and often sink. But when these fire ants come together, they get a hold of each other. They, they grasp each other with their, their jaws, with their, their feet. And they have tiny little hairs on their body. And these tiny little hairs form air pockets when they all get together and they can float on top of the water when a flood comes. Now what Paul is saying in this passage is clear. A flood will come. Trials are going to come. The question is, will we stand firm when they do? Will we be able to stand and to make it in the midst of the trials and the hardships and the difficulties of life? And what Paul is saying is this. When we link hands and we grit our teeth and we say we're in this together, then we'll be able to stand. We'll be able to stand firm. The pressures of life, the temptations of life will not be able to knock us down when we stand together. When we link hands together. So stand firm, brothers and sisters. Stand together. Care deeply for one another. Work toward resolving the disputes that you have. And as a church, we must always recognize that division must be taken seriously and must be dealt with. We must pursue unity. So believer, I ask you today, are you linking up with fellow believers in purposeful relationships? Are you working through differences that you have with with others? Some of you today, what you need to do when you walk away is you need to get on the phone and call someone and say, hey, let's meet up. Not through text message, please. Not through a Facebook message. No, face-to-face. Face-to-face, get together, work things out. Others of you need to make a deeper investment of your life within the body of Christ. You need to say, you know what? I, I really, I need to belong in this church and I need to, or, or, I need to, to get connected with, with other believers. And that would be the next step for you. Kind of linking up. 
kind of building some deeper relationships so that it's not just kind of I see them and say hi and then I'm, I'm gone. Because we need relationships to be deeper than that, more binding than that. The kind of relationship that we see in verse 1 that, that Paul describes. You see, we'll stand firm when we stand together. So pursue godly relationships. One of the ways you could do that is to jump into a Bible study on Sunday morning at 9.30 or one of the other small groups that that meets in our church. Now some of you are here and the truth is you're, you're not a part of God's family. Well, not yet anyway. That, that could change today. How, how do you become a member of God's family? How do you get adopted where he lifts you up and holds you and says, you're mine now? Will you come to the place where you say to him, I'm tired of going my own way. God, I'm tired of living the way that I want to live. And God, now I'm committed to following you. I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died for my sins, that he came back to life. And when you ask God to forgive you and you place your faith in Christ, the Bible says that he saves you and that he'll never, ever let you go. You know how when you're a part of a family, you're always part of a family, like it or not? It's kind of like that. Once you belong to him, you'll always be part of his family. And you know how sometimes being a part of a family is really great and sometimes it's kind of difficult? Well, the good news is, and it's almost always good news, sometimes it's challenging, but God uses the challenges even for good. If you come to know Jesus, his plan is for you to be a part of a family, a family like this. Not a perfect family, but a family where people will love and support you and where you likewise can love and support others. So today, you don't have to leave here alone. You can be surrounded by fellow children of God who will say to you, you're my brother, you're my sister. And most importantly, you can look up to God and know that you have a heavenly father. So today, would you turn from your sin? Would you call out to him and be saved? Be saved for all eternity be adopted into his family, his forever family. Join me in prayer.